Greetings and salutations. You're listening to This Ends at Prom, a podcast where I, teen movie apologist BJ Colangelo, show my wife, Harmony Colangelo, a seminal teen girl movie that I missed out on because I grew up as a teen boy. Is today's movie truly emblematic of womanhood? Or of rose-colored nostalgia glasses What your perspective? Circle yes, no, or maybe to find out if we're crowning a queen. Or if we're killing the teen dream. Welcome to This Ends at Prom. This Ends at Prom is a Pod People production. I don't wanna be your merch girl. I wanna be your goddamn idol. And I don't wanna have to work twice as hard for the same motherfucking title. But I. Welcome back, prom party. Bleh. It's spooky <laughs> season. The return. The squeakle. The s- no, not the squeakle. <laughs> the book of shadows. The prom night two electric boogaloo. <laughs> Hello, Mary Lou. This ends at prom two. Yeah, that's much smarter than the <laughs> shit I was saying. I was saying much dumber things. <laughs> Well, friends, welcome back. It's the most wonderful time of the year. It is. And gosh, everyone is really, really excited for this episode as soon as we said we were doing it, huh? Yeah, everyone's pretty stoked about it, and it makes me feel really good. Yeah, especially because, okay, a little little like inside baseball for y'all is this was actually a first draft pick for us to do this last year, I think like week one of Halloween. This was the first one that I recommended. <laughs> yes, and I said hey, maybe we could save that one and instead let's do Casper. Because <laughs> I, I wanted something that was a little bit more, you know, fit on the, the Freeform channel or, or Fox Family. Mm-hmm. Like I wanted something on the docket that could fit that quota. And to be fair, that episode ended up becoming one of our kind of surprise sleeper hits where people were like, wow, I was not anticipating for that to be such a deep episode. Neither was I, and I, st- <laughs> I really liked that Casper episode, despite thinking Casper's just fine. <laughs> yeah, and another aspect of Inside Baseball is that around this time last year, I was approached to moderate the reunion uh, sort of talk back with screenwriter Karen Walton and actress Emily Perkins to do the 20th anniversary of Ginger Snaps at the Salem Horror Festival. So it really did feel like, well, we don't want to do an episode and have me do this. That just seems like a lot in a short amount of time. So we decided to wait and do it this year. And it seems that y'all have been waiting with anticipation because everyone is very hype. Mm -hmm. And had we done this last year, then you would have not hosted that reunion yet. That's very true. So like this is much better. (laughs) Yeah, got a lot of fun facts and things that we'll bring out and scatter throughout the episode, but we're really, really excited to kick things off with 2000's Ginger Snaps. Yeah. So Harmony, what was your introduction to Ginger Snaps? I actually asked you while we were rewatching it, like, well, what's the public consciousness of this movie? Because I feel like I'm still seeing people on, like, the internet or in our specific circles be like, oh, my God, why are we not talking more about Ginger Snaps? And I'm like, dude, we've always been talking about Ginger Snaps. You just weren't listening (laughs) because 
I think I saw Ginger Snaps in like, I don't know, 2003, 2004 on sci-fi. And weirdly enough, I saw the second one first. That is a very, that is a very odd thing, but that's also a very harmony way of being introduced to something. Yes, I've seen most sequels to horror films before the originals, <laughs> like the aforementioned Book of Shadows, Blair Witch 2. So the way that I've always described Ginger Snaps is Ginger Snaps is sort of that section of horror movies that acts as a buffer between kind of normies and hardcore horror fans. Mm. Like, Ginger Snaps is a movie that a lot of people who aren't hardcore into horror know about, but it doesn't have quite the household name as a lot of other horror properties have because this was an independent film, and especially in America, I mean, this is a Canadian film. This went direct-to-video here, but then it got picked up on HBO, became kind of a cult hit, and it also did really well in video store rentals. And the year 2000 is kind of like peak blockbuster explosion, Mm. and that's definitely how I found it is – we rented it from the video store and watched it at a sleepover and had a great time. We're like, holy shit, this movie is amazing and kind of brutal. But it's it's a movie that I think still is underseen for how good it is. But because so many horror fans love it, I think sometimes it's hard for us to look outside of our bubble and recognize that that the status quo doesn't really know about this movie yet. No, that makes a lot of sense. And it's a shame that it's not a more household name because Ginger Snaps is such a perfect title because oh it's God, really yeah. cheesy, but also it is menacing because she snaps. Mm-hmm. And like that perfectly encapsulates like the seriousness and also the dark humor of this movie. Agreed completely. I definitely have had conversations with people in the past. Um, like I kind of became the go to person to recommend scary movies when I was in college Mm -hmm. and I remember recommending this once to some of my friends that were in a sorority because they were looking for like girl horror and I I was like you you gotta watch Ginger Snaps and the common response was that sounds like a Christmas movie yeah because they think of the cookie and I was like no year round cookie (laughs) agreed completely gingerbread men are when we start getting into Mm -hmm. like holiday but um I, I've converted a lot of people over to the gospel of Ginger Snaps, which I'm very happy to have done over the years because this movie's great and it deserves all the attention that it can get. Absolutely. Fuck. Wrists are for girls. I'm slitting my throat. You should definitely hang. Maybe even your final moments of cliche around here. Not ours. B, ours will rock. You don't think our deaths should be a little more than cheap entertainment? You jazz me on this. Don't wuss out now. It's the idea of everyone staring at me just lying there. I mean, what if they just... laugh? They'll be in awe. Suicide's like the ultimate fuck you. Come on, it's so us. So for the uninitiated, and according to our friends over at Fandango... Our friend Dango says, Ginger Snaps is the story of two outcast sisters, Ginger, Catherine Isabel, and Bridget, Emily Perkins, in the mindless suburban town of Bailey Downs. On the night of Ginger's first period, she is savagely attacked by a wild creature. Ginger's wounds miraculously heal, but something is not quite right. Now Bridget must save her sister and save herself. I mean, yeah, that's a good synopsis that also leaves a lot of mystery. Yeah, that's one of the better ones. Good job, Fandango. I'm proud of you. Mm-hmm. 
But there is a lot to dive into, not even just in the film as a whole, but also in the world surrounding its production. So before we start pulling out those nitty-gritty, let's set the stage and talk about what was going on film-wise in the year 2000. It's the new millennium, Y2K, baby. Oh, God, this is... Like... I, I think that this is a kind of a, a poopy year for movies a little bit mm-hmm. where we we were looking at some of the releases because it, it's a rough year for teen girl movies, especially following 99, which is the best year for 99 teen movies ever. is the year. Yes. So it's a rough follow up. Like it's got a severe sophomore slump to that year. And also horror is in a really weird spot where you have like a couple really big releases and then it gets a little not not as good not as well known the, the teen mm-hmm. scenarios like that and we were looking at films overall and god people only were talking about gladiator this year yeah was it gladiator and traffic are like gladiator the two big and ones? traffic and crouching tiger hidden dragons like swept the academy awards and what what a high class year <laughs> like it is all about cinema pinched hand emoji <laughs> Didn't the Patriot come out this year too? The Patriot did come out this year, okay. amongst a lot of other really pretentious Blech. movies. And but like there was good stuff, like Emperor's New Groove and Bedazzled came out. Well, thank God for both of those. <laughs> yes, of course. So like I like the B tier movies from this year, and gosh, our our two bread and butter genres of comparison for Ginger Snaps really are a lot of B tier movies. All right, so what are we working with here? So obviously you have some big teen releases that really don't reflect the world that Ginger Snaps lives in, like Bring It On or Almost Famous or even like Love and Basketball and the perpetually underrated loser. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. But Agreed. then once you get outside of those, you get like Life Size, which was a TV movie. Which is also great, though. Yes. And <laughs> then you get like Road Trip and Boys and girls, because Jason Biggs was just tearing it up this year. Mm-hmm. And 100 girls and whatever it takes. And these were considered the popular releases, according to Google. And I've not heard of three of those movies. <laughs> yeah, especially compared to 99, which brought us the everything. And then even into 2001, when we know that the the following year is pretty successful mm-hmm. as well. This does feel kind of like a rebuilding year. And I can't help but think that it has to do with what happened in 1999 that almost destroyed this movie as well. Yeah. And um, before we really unpack what that big glaring moment in American history was, the horror scene really wasn't any better, and it was probably severely impacted by that as well. Okay, so what's going on horror-wise? Because 99, I remember as being a great year. I don't fully remember what came out in 2000. Um. Well, arguably the biggest horror movie of the year was Scary Movie. Oh, okay, yeah. So that's a thing. You also have The First Final Destination. Which I love. Mm-hmm. And then it gets... Uh, a little more dicey. Okay. You, you, ha- you have um, stuff like Scream 3, which isn't a teen horror movie anymore, but started as one. Mm-hmm. Like, this is the first one that's definitively not a teen movie anymore. Oh, yeah. And it's also the weakest one in the franchise so far. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, and here's the thing. The weakest Scream movie is better than, like, the average of 
most other franchises. I mean, it's better than a lot of the movies I'm about to name drop. (laughs) (laughs) All right. What else you got? Like, okay. So there's a movie that I know that you really love and have a great deal of fondness and actually just bought a hard copy of, which is Cherry Falls. I love Cherry Falls. It is a hot mess that I cannot believe exists. Um, And it's also really hard to find because it's never been on streaming. But Mm -hmm. Scream Factory has a release. It is a problematic nightmare. But, oh, it's... It, they took some swings. One day we will cover that and One give day. Brittany Murphy her flowers for the first time since the first episode of the podcast. <laughs> uh, all other releases are Psycho Beach Party. I love that. Leprechaun in the Hood. Don't love that as much. No. Um, Blair Witch Book of Shadows. I'm an apologist for that. I Again, I saw it before the first one and I like it better than the first one. I'm an apologist for it. Like the Blair Witch Project original movie changed my life in a lot of ways book of shadows is not trying to be the Blair Witch Project and that's why I think that movie gets a bad rip if you watch it as kind of its own entity and understand that it's a completely different genre it's Uh a lot more enjoyable I think it's just really campy and fun Mm -hmm. it is it's campy and fun but everyone's like oh this isn't as scary as the other one well yeah bro it's not trying to be calm down no it's it's really not this is an era of of spooky mysteries Yes, as our friends over at the Austerian podcast call it, the aughts is the time of the sad mystery. Yes, and there's two other horror releases this year that I set aside for the very end because in my brain, one of these is one of the best comparisons to Ginger Snaps in terms of at least my like horror up, uprising. <laughs> okay. And the other one is probably a much better comparison. So on one hand, you have 2000's Crocodile. Okay. Which... <laughs> I love the first Crocodile, and I yes, think the first yes, one yes. is some okay schlock, but I think about how Crocodile also used to air all the time on sci-fi, mm-hmm. and sci-fi is very much where I like I cut my teeth as like a young horror fan, mm-hmm. and people would dismiss movies like that, which don't get me wrong, it's not great, but I think it's super duper fun. Or they would dismiss stuff like Ginger Snaps or um, like Dog Soldiers or any number of these other movies that would air on sci-fi all the time because they would see them as sci-fi movies, mm-hmm. which meant that was like a stamp of poor quality. And that wasn't necessarily true. It just meant that they were not expensive to acquire the rights to. Right. And l- let me also just get on kind of a little bit of a sci-fi soapbox here. Sci-fi gets a bad rap as well because they've put out stuff like like the Sharknado movies and things like that. That's the Asylum's fault, not sci-fi's fault. And that's the thing. Like sci-fi did put out a lot of movies that cost like like nothing to make and they are a little campy. But sci-fi also puts out incredibly good quality product and a lot of really cool series and a lot of really cool movies. And Mm -hmm. people need to stop making this weird lump assumption about like what a sci-fi movie is because it feels very much the same way as when people are like, oh, Lifetime movies. They're all like cheesy and heartfelt. I'm like, first off, you're thinking about Hallmark. Second of all, like, no, there's a lot of great stuff on Lifetime the same way that there's a lot of great stuff on sci-fi. So get, get off your pretentious, your pretentious high horse pedestals and give sci-fi a chance. There's good shit there. Yeah, let me enjoy Ghost Shark or Abominable or any of the other creature features that they put out that I'm a big fan of. <laughs> but the the much more direct and I think apt comparison because it's it's the other side of the same coin to Ginger Snaps is American Psycho. Oh yeah, that is 2000. But that's also interesting because it's 2000, but it also feels 
It's it's an eighties movie. Basically. Yeah, it's an eighties movie. So that, oh, that's really interesting. But they analyze like femininity versus masculinity in really intense ways. Oh yeah, American Psycho is completely just a look in the world of wealthy white masculinity, mm-hmm. and it's it's very fascinating. I love that they subverted what is such a misogynist book and turned it into something so kind of like anti man <laughs> yes and something so unbelievably good yeah it's so good like american psycho is just one of those films where it's like is is it a perfect film it's pretty fucking close to being perfect i have no notes okay see <laughs> awesome but yeah that's kind of our our look back and realistically there's not a ton in common with what ginger snaps has going on to anything else being released in that lineup like maybe aesthetically like Book of Shadows kind of looks like Ginger Snaps, but it's like not at all the same film. one character in Book of Shadows sort of fits in the world of yeah, Ginger Snaps. Yeah, I think that that's just like the styling of the era, even though Ginger Snaps actually looks like it could be 1991 and also 2007. Yeah, we were talking about that, looking at sort of the aesthetics of the film. And what's cool about late 90s, early 2000s movies is that for the most part, like a very basic style of dress became very popular, um, Mm -hmm. as well as sort of just very basic hairstyling. Like that wasn't very distinct. Like it's not teased hair of the 80s. It's not feathered hair of the 70s. Yeah. And with few exceptions, like Trina Sinclair's high, like chunky ass highlights in this Uh movie, take out those sorts of aesthetic pieces. Or uh, there's at one point where there's a close up on a girl and she has like frosted eyeshadow. You take those elements away and you're like, oh, this movie can exist in like a 15-year window Mm style-wise, which gives it this sort of ageless feeling, which I I really enjoy that. It's it's weirdly Diablo Cody-esque in that sense. Yeah, very much so, where it's playing with a lot of different time periods because like, oh, I like this thing because it's vintage. So then it becomes really hard to kind of place in time and therefore becomes timeless. Yeah, actually, that kind of brings up an interesting conversation that I I think would be really fun to dive into before we hit the movie, which is that this movie is extremely Canadian. This movie is so Canadian. It it just is. And what's also kind of cool is you mentioned Final Destination. Um, two of the actors in this go on to be in Final Destination three. Uh-huh. Um, and a lot of the performers in this would continue to to go on and do more. Things shot in Canada, especially Emily Perkins. Mm-hmm. Uh, Catherine Isabel as well did did obviously a ton of work, but uh, Emily Perkins did a lot of stuff that was shot in Canada. Yeah, and I've always really liked that about this movie because suburban America can obviously be viewed in here for sure, mm-hmm. but there's just a lot of sensibilities about this that just feel very very Canadian, and like this might be stereotypical, but I love how frequently everybody is either playing. Uh, field hockey or street hockey. Mm-hmm. Like, that is just very, very Canadian. Like, no one's playing basketball. Everyone's that, playing hockey. But that's also just kind of like a hangover from the 90s kind of thing. Oh, yeah. We got the the totally radical Mighty Ducks era. Exactly. So it's not that weird for there to be this chubby kid playing street hockey. Like, that, that makes sense for this era. But the thing that I really like as far as it aesthetically goes is that because it's very, very Canadian, it doesn't look dated in the way that you think the year 2000 looks like in terms of mainstream fashion. Mm-hmm. Like the irony is that like Americans were wearing Canadian tuxedos on the red carpet and there is not a single Canadian tuxedo by which I mean too much denim <laughs> <laughs> going on in this movie. And we actually had a really interesting conversation about this recently because we're rewatching Are You Afraid of the Dark? Mm-hmm. And 
that is also a show that feels extremely Canadian, mm-hmm. but it's not doesn't appear to be set in Canada in universe, but it also kind of is. It's just not really addressed, and it feels also like it could be ninety percent of America, like small town mm-hmm. America, and that's kind of the window this movie functions in, where you don't have like the ridiculous Lizzie McGuire outfits that you would see in mainstream American culture going on that would immediately right, date right. this film. Right. And maybe it's because it's like counterculture or something like that, or it could just be that like Canada's a little bit removed away from our pop culture. But I think it gives it this very unique aesthetic that does not age it in the same way that if this was like an independent American release. Agree completely. I think that had, so bringing up like the Book of Shadows point, had this movie been an American made, like the goth aesthetic would not have looked the way that it does for ginger and bridget it would have looked like book of shadows it would have looked like daniel harris in urban legend it, it would have been, been more this, like mall goth it would have been this mall goth cyberpunk like very extreme appearance very very glamorous and overly done yeah, yeah totally because that's just kind of that weird american shine we add on everything to make everything kind of unrealistic looking no this this is this is casual goth it's 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 average high school girl goth. What can I afford? What can I get away with? What what can I pull off? Yeah, what did I get that was not, you know, exclusively pulled from highly stylized goth boutiques? Yeah, like this this the goth fashion in this feels very practical, which is fine. It's Canada, it's cold. There's a lot of like sweaters and long sleeves and stuff going on. But mm-hmm. also it feels extremely thrifted, almost in a way that the grunge aesthetic of like the Seattle area feels. Yeah. Yeah, no, there there is sort of like a thrifted aesthetic to it that, and again, that's another thing that I really like about this because this movie feels so grounded in reality and a lot of it has to do with the production design and the costuming. It's mm-hmm. just, it's, it's fantastic. Yeah, big fan. Trina Sinclair, DOA at the hair dye aisle, perished while seeking matching barrettes on nothing but diet pills and laxatives. Likes her shorts stuck up her ass crack. Favorite homework excuse? My nail glitter ate it. Basic pleasure model. Your standard cum buckety date fate. Good one. So we mentioned previously what was going on culturally that really impacted this movie, and that brings up a conversation that we've we've touched on before in previous episodes, but this is the movie that was the most impacted by what happened. Um So April 20th, 1999 is the Columbine shooting Mm -hmm. and Ginger Snaps went into pre-production April of 1999. Mm -hmm. So terrible timing. Um, And what a lot of people don't know is that just a few days after Columbine, there was also a shooting in Canada. So that really kind of put both America and Canada on edge because it was back to back, like pretty much immediately. So soon after both of these shootings, the Toronto Star ran a front page article that was like Ginger Snaps, a teen slasher movie, was being partially funded by Telefilm Canada. And Telefilm Canada is funded through tax dollars. So people were furious because they were like, I don't want my tax money going to this movie that is glorifying, you know, violence against teenagers or, you know, bloody dead teens or whatever. Mm-hmm. And people were really, really, really pissed about it. And they they wanted it to be canceled. 
And so obviously that was a problem. Um, Then what came after that is six separate casting directors in Canada boycotted the film and put out notices that were like, do not let your talent audition for this movie because this is going to ruin all their careers because this is like a movie that's being made in the wake of a tragedy. This is in poor taste. Don't do it. Don't do it. Um, So that was an issue. But then on top of all of it, this is a movie about a high school. Mm -hmm. In order to make this movie, you need to get a high school to let you shoot a movie in it. Uh And when you are dealing with administration where all they know really about your movie is probably what they read in the Toronto Star, which is like, oh, this is going to be a big gory slasher movie and we just had a shooting. Everyone was like, nope, don't even want to hear it. We don't care. We don't want anything to do with this. So John Fawcett and Karen Walton had to like go above and beyond to try to get this movie made and explain to people like, no, it's about werewolves and it's about like feminism and Mm -hmm. there's a lot going on here. It is not a slasher movie. And honestly, few teens even die in this movie. Very few teens die in this movie. Um, And they finally eventually found people that were willing to audition as well as people who are willing to give them the space to to shoot the movie, which thankfully – but the like 4.5 million whatever dollar amount budget they had was brought together by 15 separate production studios. Jesus Christ. Because they had to like get money where they could. And a lot of people were like, I don't want to spend that much money on this movie that, you know, is being made in the wake of Columbine. So they were basically having to pass the hat around to everyone? Yep. All right. Well, I mean, they made it happen. And there is this really really scrappy nature to this movie that I really love because 4.5 almost seems like a little too much money for how this movie looks until you realize like the effects that like that cost them some yeah, change it's all in the climax yeah but aside from that it's just like oh no this f- could very easily be like a made for tv movie for like a, the first two thirds mm-hmm. where it's nothing too extravagant in terms of effects or budget and I think that that's really tight. And also, I'm I'm a big sucker for a monster movie and we mm-hmm. get like sniffs of 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 monsters. Like we see the little little flashes of our lycanthrope, the one that attacks Ginger. We get little bits of like her and other things floating around. We get mauled dogs. Also, the balls of this movie to start with a dead dog. Right. Oh, uh, and then have many dead dogs. Yeah, yeah. Jesus. Like dismembered dead dogs. Yes, but uh, I, I love a monster movie that lets you see the monster. Mm-hmm. And during this particular period, um, we're switching over to CG. So when you did see the monster, it looked like crap. Yeah. And this is practical. Yeah. And it maybe doesn't look perfect, but like it's still a really impressive effect, especially for 2000. And it looks so much better than if they had done it CG. I agree completely. I think we've got a, a pretty decent base kind of laid here so let's let's dive in a little bit sure and it's impossible to talk about our main teen girls separately so let's talk about ginger and bridget how do you feel about them i think they complement each other very well and when the movie starts they seem like they're pretty much like the same or they're on the same page but it's like oh no there's distinct differences between these two oh absolutely something that i find really interesting when i was talking with karen walton is that she said Bridget is based on her as a teenager mm-hmm. and Ginger is based on who she wishes she could be. Okay. Which I think that's a really interesting dynamic because you're totally right. Bridget and Ginger 
feel kind of like one and the same when we first meet them. Mm -hmm. And then the more that the film goes on, the more you realize what's happening here where you have Bridget is a year younger, but she skipped a grade and it almost feels like, oh, I have to catch up. I need to be with my sister. Mm -hmm. And then you also get the stuff from mom where she's like, all you ever do is what your sister tells you to do. And you realize like, yeah, they're, the two of them are kind of one and the same, but there's definitely a lot of admiration from Bridget towards Ginger that she's trying to emulate her big sister. Mm -hmm. So part of this movie is not just Ginger's transformation after she gets bit. It's also Bridget's transformation into being her own person. Yeah, especially because Ginger is very, very sure of who she wants to be in a way that I don't think Bridget is. And what Ginger wants to be is like, hey, um, I either want to be dead by 16, which is hashtag relatable, as well as being the opposite of the popular girls in school. Like, that's her goal is like, okay, cool. I like death. I like macabre things. Like, there's the the scene where they're just doing like these for funsies photographs of their own mortality and framing it of like, this is what life is like in our small town. We kill ourselves. Which I I love the idea of Bailey down to such a miserable place that it feels like death. Mm -hmm. And that's their interpretation. That is the most like high school edgy art girl bullshit. Oh, yeah. It's so good. I, I hope that we can track them down because I know you and I both have pictures from when we were like 15, 16 year old where we did similar <laughs> shit. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I will we'll, we'll try and find those and put them on Twitter. There's a lot of like MySpace selfies I took with like scissors. <laughs> yeah, I, I used a lot of fake blood that I had to make. I think it was like sugar and hot sauce is how I made my fake blood at home. But I think that Bridget and especially Ginger define themselves by things that they hate because I don't really know what they're interested in other than like a garden variety dark because most of their time is spent just absolutely despising stuff. Mm -hmm. and, and Bridget in particular has like, oh my God, like Emily Perkins face in this whole movie, just like she looks either like horrified with very sympathetic eyebrows or just disgusted to even be like existing. <laughs> like she just has this like sneer of like, ugh. Uh, and just like that that's her look to like pretty much everyone in her town yeah I part of me likes to think that internally like my self-esteem was very much Bridget but the way that I presented myself to the world was more ginger yeah that you're is a bad bitch pretty much and it like that was my my coping mechanism <laughs> because I feel like you have to mm -hmm. um but you're just trying to survive high school exactly but something that I really like uh, that Ginger Snaps does is that these two characters are best friends, but they are also sisters. And that sort of desexualizes their relationship a little bit. Uh -huh. um, like there is there is a queerness in this movie that exists, and it exists with Bridget, for sure. Um, How could you like a man? Why do you <laughs> like boys? Ew. But yes. Like it's very much that. But I've heard over the years the amount of people that are like, Ginger Snaps has like this like incestual queer in a vibe and I'm like no it doesn't uh -uh. you perv like they they don't have that relationship with each other like it is very much one that is built out of this is your best friend but also like it's familial it's not sexual yeah this is way less sexual than something like Jennifer's body because in Jennifer's body it is canonically sexual <laughs> like it's supposed to be really gay and this doesn't this has a similar sort of like we're best friends and we might die together kind of vibe but it's platonic yes yeah. Um, so Ginger Snaps and Jennifer's Body actually get compared a lot. 
And I understand why because because it, it deals with, you know, similar things like, you know, women taking control of their own autonomy and it becoming monstrous, having a, a best friend that's a little bit more meek, having to kind of come into their own and battle against their like wicked hot best friend. They have sexy hallway walks, sexy hallway course. walks. Like I, I totally understand why the comparisons exist. But at the same time, they are doing very, very different things. And I like the I, I like the difference really. Oh yeah. The the main one being in the case of Ginger Snaps, when Ginger does get attacked by the werewolf, it is right about the start of her first period. Mm-hmm. And there's the conversation about they say uh, bears can smell it. Mm-hmm. And it's like maybe it was a bear, and it's like there's no bears around here. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's a really interesting thing to do, especially when you you have the acknowledgement that both Ginger and Bridget are quote unquote late bloomers. Uh-huh. And something that Karen Walton has talked about that I that I found really interesting because we talked a lot about the menstruation in that interview. And when we were talking about it, she was like, when I was in school, they gave us a pamphlet. Uh-huh. That basically was like, here's what a menstrual cycle is. Here's how long it takes. Here's how it's going to change your body. And here's when you're supposed to get it. And based off of that pamphlet, it basically was insinuating that everyone's bodies are the same. So if you don't get it by the certain age, there's something wrong with you. If your flow is different than what is described, there's something wrong with you. Um, you know, and it it's this very kind of blanket thing that we do. It's like we're so afraid to have these conversations in school and talk about the complexities of menstruation. So if you are somebody who's 15, 16 years old and you haven't gotten your period yet, you do think the way their mom does where it's like, there's something wrong with them. Like, why hasn't this been happening yet? Does it hurt down by your tailbone or is it up higher? Is it, is it tight throughout here? Maybe. Does it ache back here? Might. Oh my God. Do you think it's cramps? <coughs> Give it a rest for two seconds off. Pam, we're eating. Henry. The girls are both three years late menstruating, okay? It's not normal. If it's finally happening... It's not. Honey, it's nothing to be scared of. It's the most normal thing in the world. Maybe it's cancer of the spine. Ginger Ann. Or tuberculosis. See what your attitude does? Or spondylitis. Spondyl what? Fuses your vertebrae together. Nice. Bridget, stop it. And what's also funny about the mom is that it seems like she's waiting for them to get their period because oh then you become a woman and I'm having a really hard time relating to my teenage daughters but if you if you have a period then we're women now so now we're on the same page and like we can understand each other a house full of women and formality father is there <laughs> formality father I mean that really is who he is he's and- just there <laughs> But another thing that this movie does, like with this whole menstru- this whole menstruation metaphor, which menstruation metaphors are not new. We saw it in Carrie. It's existed plenty of plenty of times. So I don't want to like really hang on that too much. But the scene when Ginger goes to the nurse. And it's more comprehensive sex ed and like biology education than most schools, especially yes. where I grew up give. Ginger snaps his discussion on like it's a period and talking about what happens is more comprehensive and understandable than what most people get in the public school system. Mm-hmm. It wild, like absolutely wild to me. And um, when I when I was talking to Karen Walton about this, she brought up how there were definitely 
people who, when they knew that this was such a part of the script, were really uncomfortable about it. And she's like, okay, cool. If you're this uncomfortable by it, imagine how it feels for all of us who menstruate that you make us feel this weird about it. Uh Like, if you think it's that gross, imagine how gross we feel for experiencing it and then also having to deal with all of your immature asses who can't handle the fact that this is a biological function that exists for people. Yeah, and, I mean, our two sisters both kind of address how it's, oh, it's gross. Oh, oh God, I'm a woman now. Oh, God, like, I'm going to be a lay or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it becomes this this thing where it's like goodbye to innocence now you're going to be sexualized by dudes who want to stare at your tits during a lacrosse game right and it becomes this whole new phase of life that is its own challenges and obviously you and i had very different puberties (laughs) you think just just a little bit show intro like i grew up as a teen boy um but (laughs) I think it's really interesting that you were an early bloomer and I was a late bloomer. Yeah. So I didn't hit puberty till like like 13, 14. I think it was like 14 when I was like cognizant of it other than just getting taller. Mm-hmm. Like I think that's around like my, my, my eighth grade years when all this happened. And that's not like super late compared to this movie, but that is later than a lot of people. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was an early bloomer. I got my period really young. Uh, my boobs came in really early. And there's this universal experience, I think, that a lot of people who are socialized as women have when they're younger, where you're like 12 or 13, and you and your friends are, you know, I'll use my own personal experience for this. We're walking to the skate park. It's about a mile away, just a bunch of prepubescent girls trying their best to impress all of the skaters and look cool and look pretty. And a semi-truck drives by. And the semi-truck driver honks at you and you go, oh, my God. Like, it's because we're so cute. Like, he honked his horn because we are so cute. Oh, my God. We're the cutest. Mm -hmm. And then you get older and you think back on that memory and you're like, that was a full-grown man who was definitely trying to compliment prepubescent girls. That's that's gross. That's not cool. He thinks he's paying you a compliment. Exactly. It's like, no, you're sexualizing children, my dude. That's gross. We were not really as aware of sexualization of young girls in 2003 as we are now. Yeah. We, We approach it as being, you know, much more scummier as it is nowadays than we did back then. Yeah. So that like that's a weird thing that comes with puberty for sure. And there's also this idea of you know, like, oh, I'm different now because this happens. I think that's less so now. I think people are just like, hey, it's a thing that happens and it's not so precious the way that it used to be. I mean, I remember reading things like, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. And all of them talking about wanting to get their periods or growing boobs and how like, oh, when am I ever going to be this way? Or, you know, the entirety of Sam's character in 16 Candles of like, I look like a child. Uh, I still look like a 15-year-old. I don't think that's as much a thing now. Um, I, I do think that younger girls are appearing older earlier and earlier just because of like Instagram, like influencer face and things like that. And people just want to look older. Like you see yeah. those memes nowadays of people our age being like, me when I was 13 and they're like dressed like a dork and it's like people that look like they're 13 now and it's... It's, it's it's Instagram. They want mm-hmm. to look older, much older. Right. So I do think that like that's a part of it. 
but I don't think that there are as many girls like praying for their period. I don't think that's a thing anymore. Probably not. Um, I, so this is an interesting conversation of me not having good sex ed or public education or anything as far as discussing puberty goes is that I did not know what puberty was because my dad didn't want to talk about it. And my mom thought it was my dad's responsibility to talk about it. So they said, oh, the school will talk about it. And then I never learned anything. <laughs> so uh, do you want to know where I learned about periods was? Criminal Minds. King of the Hill. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I learned from the aisle 8A episode of oh, King of the Connie Hill. Oh, when Connie gets her period? Yes. And she's like, oh, I'm a woman now, so I can't be around you, Bobby, my mom says. <laughs> and he's like, well, I'm still a boy. And it's like, well, I think I'm only a woman like three times a month. And I don't want to see you during those days because you annoy me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Yeah. So that was, I didn't understand my puberty or my anything going on. I understood women even less. So that was my understanding of periods until I was like <laughs> 16 years old. That's really funny. And that episode came out in like 99. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Look at you, King of the Hill. King of the Hill's the fucking best. <laughs> I love you, Mike Judge. So obviously, this entire movie is about a werewolf transformation and Bridget trying to help her sister, Ginger, kind of leaning into you know the reality of who she is, um, all that going on. So how do you feel about the the whole werewolf transformation themes like and what it does to their characters? I mean, I think it's pretty tight. Um... I think werewolves in a very classic sense are a little restrictive. Mm -hmm. Like the idea of, well, you're only a werewolf once a month or you can only be killed by a silver bullet. So if you shove dynamite down Wolfman's pants and blows up, he'll piece himself back together like in Monster Squad. Mm -hmm. I'm like, that's cool, but it's also kind of like it makes them more fantastical rather than just creatures of nature. Well, and that's what I like a lot about this movie is canonically speaking the werewolf exists all the time. Like it, mm -hmm. like Ginger is going to become a wolf and remain a wolf. She's not yes. just going to be, it's not temporary. Exactly. And I think that that is lycanthropy that is more interesting to me because it feels less like an like a once a month inconvenience. My old werewolf Aunt Flo is in town and I'm going to maul some dogs once a month. Like that's fine, I guess. But this story doesn't work for that. Mm -hmm. And despite it being a puberty metaphor, it's not about that once a month kind of thing. Yeah, it's about the irreversible change that happens once puberty begins. Exactly. And I like to see the gradual change of Ginger. I like that she starts to grow hair out of her scars and is like, ew, I'm growing body hair in gross places. I can't have a hairy chest bee. I, I can't have a hairy chest bee that's fucked. Yeah, I, I think that that's tight that she grows like a weird little gross tail and you're like, oh my God, that effect looks so gross and it scared me. The first time <laughs> that you see her tail when, and again, because people are the worst, how that scene happens is Ginger's laying on her stomach in her underwear and Bridget comes up with a flashlight in her mouth to take her underwear down to like check for the tail 
and the amount of people that are like, oh my God, that scene, it's so sexualized, blah, blah, blah. There's nothing inherently sexual about somebody sleeping in their underwear. Calm down. Mm -mm. But when you get that reveal of the tail, it looks so real and it always catches me off guard when I see it. Like, no offense to anybody out there who may have an elongated tailbone and therefore have a tail. I don't think you're gross. I think in this particular instance, that effect looks very unsettlingly real and it freaks me out. I think it's not gross there. I think it's gross when it gets longer. Oh, and you got to tape it to her leg to go to gym class? Yeah, which would hurt so bad. But like, as a person who likes possums a lot, I appreciate a prehensible tail, which are also basically hairless. But God, the werewolves in this movie are gross because they're basically like giant snarling naked mole rats. They really are. They're like those gross hairless cats, <laughs> but they're big scary wolves and oh God, I... I think that they're so much more unsettling than, like, fuzzy wolves. I agree, because fuzzy wolves, like, to to some extent, there's a little bit of cuteness to them. Well, yeah, you see a wolf in the wild and go, that's going to maul me, but also puppy. Mm -hmm. This Mm -hmm. one, I'm like, "Eh, I don't want to touch you. Yeah, there's that Polaroid picture that Bridget takes where you get that side image of its mouth and its eye, and it's, like, a little bit shiny looking, and you're like, ugh, I don't like that. Yeah, it's, (laughs) it's weird, and I think that that's way more interesting than a lot of classic wolfmen types. I totally agree. Again, I I like the interesting directions they went while still adhering to like the basic concept of what a werewolf is, Mm -hmm. but taking a lot of liberties that also works within this world. And it it gets you the desired effect in a lot of ways that you wouldn't with a normal wolf too. Yeah. Um, And kind of going off of the thing that you said about, you know, I can't have a hairy chest be that's fucked. Uh, Something else that I think is really, really strong in this movie is how natural all of these characters feel and the way that they communicate feels very natural. Mm -hmm. Um, That that just really, really speaks to me and it kind of always has. Um, Karen Walton did an interview with Bloody Disgusting uh, for the anniversary as well. And she talks about the dialogue uh, by saying, yeah, I was not a happy teenager. I moved at 14 to another part of the country, so I didn't have nostalgia for being 14. I had nothing but remembering living in a teenage basement bedroom, scheming to get out. That was really true to my experience. I was in a strange culture that wasn't like the one I grew up in, and I didn't ask to be there, and I didn't want to be there. It was a suburb that looked exactly like the one in the movie, and I was just like, how do I get out of here? How do I survive until I can escape? That's what I truly remember about being 15. No, that feels very, very sincere for my for my experience. I think it's very relatable. You and I were both basement kids. Yeah. I, I wasn't a basement kid until I got older. Okay, I don't know if I've told this story on the podcast at any point, but my bedroom growing up was seven feet by nine feet. And how tall are you? I am six foot three and have <laughs> been since I was like 13 years old. Also, I had a twin bed. Which is six feet long. Mm-hmm. You were so taller than your bed. I was too big for my bed and too big for my room. So I just moved into the basement and slept on a futon for like eight years because I took the futon with me when I moved because I was not taking the twin. <laughs> so um, yeah, we both lived in basements and like you've you've seen my basement bedroom. Mm-hmm. It is like an unfinished basement where we slap down a, a hunk of rug and we're like, yeah, that, that's finished. Yep. <laughs> that this this is the TV watching area where the, there's cracks in the walls and you'll get centipedes that come through and scurry across the walls at night. Like, yeah, that's my basement. It's fine. <laughs> I threw sheets up and called it a day so that I, I had sort of walls. I got lucky that like I had an actual room in the basement, um, but and our basement was also finished. But well, there aren't is... you fancy? <laughs> there is something to 
the world of being like a basement kid though. My friend Amanda was also a basement kid. And there there's this weird sense of like independence and privacy. It's kind of like a little bit of a bachelor pad. Kind of. Where like, it's like, oh, it's it's almost like moving into a guest house, but it's a basement. Yeah. Like I didn't have a bathroom in the basement. So like I would have to go upstairs to use the bathroom. Obviously the kitchen was up there if I wanted food or whatever. But for the most part, I could just kind of go downstairs and lock myself in my room and I was away from everything. And I think there's – you do feel a little empowered by being able to do that. And I think Bridget and Ginger have that. Yeah, and they have – I'm, I'm sure that they enjoy it, but they have the saddest looking basement. It looks like – weirdly enough, like the sequel, It's it looks like a psych ward. Yeah, a, with a those, little bit. With those beds and the basic walls and, like, this industrial lamp from, like, a probably a shoe factory or something just drilled into the wall. Uh-huh. It is so barren and sad, and that's exactly what they want. It's a reflection of my torment living in this suburb. Yeah. Like, that's really what's going on there. But then, you know, because they have that bedroom, they have their own bathroom, mm-hmm. they're able to hide kind of what's going on and not have to involve their family in it at all. I know. And they have like a very, very, I mean, plain and beige, but a nicely furnished home outside of their Mm -hmm. rooms. I also love their mom. Oh, my God. I love her so much. Mom is committed in in a good way and a bad way. Mom is a great mom. (laughs) The reason that I love this mom character um, who is played by Mimi Rogers is because she she loves her children unconditionally. Which is good and bad. Which is both good and bad. I mean, it's bad in that she does kind of enable them. But it's good. She's in... about to cover up murders for them. Yeah. That's, you know, not the not the best thing in the world. Eh. But like, hey, mother's love. Um, but she doesn't shame her kids for being into what they're into. She doesn't understand it. Mm-hmm. And she will identify and acknowledge that she doesn't understand it. But she doesn't try to, like, change them. Yeah. Mom uses the good Tupperware to hide the disembodied fingers that she found in the lawn. Correct. Like, she could have just used a Ziploc baggie or wrapped them in tinfoil. No. Good Tupperware. Mm Mm-hmm. And Dad is just grossed out and he's unsettled by it, which is, weirdly enough, that seems to be the trend of, like, the male figures, like, the adult male figures in this movie. They're either, like, grossed out by or unsettled by or sexualize these girls. And that's it. Mm Mm-hmm. That those are, those are all of the adult men in this movie. Yeah. And in fact, that's most of the men, but like specifically the adult men. And I mean, is there really something more unknown to a full grown man than a teenage girl? Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. And so speaking of the boys in, in this movie, like, yeah, there's like teachers and the janitor and the dad. Well, this movie only has like seven characters, yeah. really. But then you've got the two main boys. So first there's Jason, who is kind of bro-y, um, and he's the one that Ginger ends up attacking and turning as well. He gets a werewolf STD. He gets a werewolf STD, but what I love is that he goes through, he essentially goes through like werewolf puberty again, mm-hmm. and it makes him look awful. <laughs> it's acne and looks all gross and shit. Yeah, he gets like these really like, he has these blistering sores. He's, you know, pissing blood. Like, it's it's not a great... Ah, yes. Puberty. Pissing blood. <laughs> um, like, like it's, it's not going good for him. And to me, I've always read that as, like, what happens to us, you know, speaking from the binary gender, what happens to us when we 
go through puberty. And it's like women become these objects of desire and, you know, Ginger develops this confidence and she develops kind of like this hot girl persona. But women become these objects of desire mm-hmm. and then men become like creepy predators. Yeah. Um, and that's how we're seeing this play out with the werewolf. Is that obviously a sweeping generalization of what happens? Yes, of course, of course. But And I hate that I have to do this preemptive thing. I saw a tweet the other day that was like, I can tell if a person is involved on Twitter or TikTok based on how many pre preemptive arguments they have to make whenever they talk about something Mm -hmm. because if you don't talk about something then people assume like oh well you didn't mention this so therefore you must believe it and it's like no that's not how that works Mm -hmm. but I have to do it for my own sanity you've been on the internet a long time I've been on the internet for way too long and it has broken my brain and how I communicate with people yeah so anyway sweeping generalizations aside Jason's a piece of shit, so when he turns into a werewolf and goes through werewolf puberty, that piece of shittiness is personified in the way that his face and body responds to it, whereas Ginger gets, like, hotter. Yeah, and all of that actually has a talking point that I want to bring up, at least for a little bit, which is that this is a very, very popular movie amongst trans people. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, a lot of trans people, when they get on hormones, they consider it uh, a second puberty And I don't know if I, like, feel that in my own soul because I've been on and off of hormones for the better part of 12 years. So, like, I've gone back and forth between various gendered puberties, like, nine times. Mm -hmm. And I've been pretty balanced for the most part, but that just might be a me thing. I'm only speaking from my own experience. But as is the case with, like, vampires or Frankenstein or werewolves like that any kind of monstrous transformation or or a body horror like there's always going to be a trans read to it but the idea of these characters now going through a second puberty and being turned into a monster in some respect by it at least in terms of like society how how, how do you feel about that i i have my thoughts but i want to hear yours so i'm a little conflicted about it because there are a lot of things that i agree with completely in terms of the trans read you have the second puberty you have the idea of transforming into who you always were meant to be there's the internal conflict of this changing body and feeling very alien in it and trying to figure out how to feel comfort in that and then once you do find that comfort then there's a lot of power that's there and and there's also a lot of anger and a lot of aggression because you Mm -hmm. recognize how poorly you've been treated But I think another aspect of this is that when you're a werewolf, (laughs) um, a lot of how you're treated is is that external factor. And I think a lot of these discussions started happening a, a lot more in the last two years or so because a lot of people have been locked in their house with nothing better to do but think about themselves and what's going on in their own lives and, you know, seeing themselves in ways they hadn't before. So there was a lot of discussion about werewolf as trans read, but specifically from people who had not yet had the trans experience with that external factor outside of the internet, Mm -hmm. where you're existing in public and you're being treated in public like a monster and not knowing what that feels like just yet. Mm -hmm. So that's where my conflict comes from is less about like, no, I I believe that this, this read exists and I see it wholeheartedly. But I've also noticed that the conversation has been had by people who they've not had that hallway walk moment yet Mm -hmm. where they've discovered, 
are the people really into what I'm putting out or are the people very against what I'm putting out and then they're going to treat me like I'm the beast of Bailey Downs? Yeah, uh, that's, that second point is kind of more of where I sit with this where, you know, you and I are both basement kids and the irony is that people who are internet basement kids who are spending all their time not out there in the sun – Mm-hmm. That that's where all of this is coming from. So, like in that sense, it's actually really, really perfect. But also, in terms of monstrous characters, monstrous femmes in particular, being seen as trans roots, I I think werewolves are probably one of the most on the nose and at least to me least interesting of of your big ones. Yeah, because like unlike your other classic monsters, who are all you know, whether it be a monster of science, like. Frankenstein, where, you know, bring the torches and the pitchfork, people see you as that all the time, it is what it is, um, versus, like, this sexual allure of becoming a vampire, um, like, in the form of, like, a familiar, where you desire to, they you want to be turned. There is this um, lack of consent and this this aggressive being turned against your will thing in terms of werewolves that really clashes with the, like, euphoria of a trans read for me. Yeah, and the other thing to be made is that Ginger Snaps is, like we said earlier, one of the only exceptions where the transformation is permanent and constant. So the idea of, oh, I feel seen by werewolf movies also implies that really gross turfy logic of like a wolf in sheep's clothing Mm -hmm. kind of thing, because that's literally what this is, is canonically most werewolves only change with the full moon so they're able to kind of like walk amongst you for most of the month and then turn into a wolf Mm -hmm. and that perpetuates like really really dangerous rhetoric that is continually used to cause harm to actual trans people yeah and i mean i i guess before we move on to our next topic i go i want to say that if people have this read and they that that this works for them then you know more power to you that that's cool uh, for me personally, I've never really identified with like the horror towards my own body in the way that you have with this, with like a transformation or with like a body horror film of like, oh, there's something in here and it's not my body and I, I want to be who I want to be. And that theming's never really worked for me because I don't hate my body. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's where I'm, I, I butt heads with that principle the most mm-hmm. on like a personal level, but like I can see it. Yeah, totally. And for me, you know, as comes with a lot of things, the trans read of this exists, but I think this is classified more as that monstrous femme, as this idea that once women, you know, either cis or trans, but once women become of age, then they become something to fear mm-hmm. and something that needs to be controlled or something that needs to be punished just for existing mm-hmm. i think that is the the stronger read of this um but again that's the beauty of film is that you can kind of analyze things however way that you want yeah absolutely and i think that speaks to kind of what this movie is doing above most other werewolf movies is that it can comfortably hold down more than one of these reads in its ideals mm-hmm I like, yeah, I like that a lot too. And something that Karen Walton said in this interview with Bloody Disgusting and kind of the symbolism of transformation and, you know, kind of werewolf movies for the most part too, until Ginger Snaps are about, they're about men mm-hmm. um, and men turning into monsters. So, mm-hmm. you know, this was a really, really groundbreaking movie that has obviously influenced a lot of things moving forward. 
But in, in Karen's words, she says, that was the driving agenda. How could we tell a different kind of werewolf story, a different kind of monster movie, you know? A monster movie that was grounded in emotional reality is really interesting to me, probably because I was such a big Mary Shelley fan as a kid. So I read Frankenstein, and the book was very different than all the movies and the plays of it, which tend to romanticize the experience of someone who has brought to life a collection of dead bodies. And the book was more graphic and intense and told from the point of view of a guy who's watching what's happening to both creatures. I was really interested in that sort of thing, and John, referring to John Fawcett, the director, being so well-versed in horror and so up-to-date on the genre introduced me to many more movies that I wouldn't have seen because we were working on this together. It was very important to both of us. Both of us wanted to do a monster movie that wasn't like all the other monster movies, and on top of that, John's interest in exploring the teenage girl in horror and my interest in reclaiming the teenage girl in horror to someone more relatable or certainly someone more like an experience I recognized instead of the perfect outfits and, you know, the, the screaming and horror films. I was looking for that. I wanted to tell a teenage girl scary movie from the point of view of someone who didn't have all the friends in the world and wasn't going to all the best parties. More like Carrie or Heavenly Creatures came out and then we used to talk about the script as Heavenly Creatures meets David Cronenberg's The Fly. So you want to do this slow transformation like The Fly. And I really loved Heavenly Creatures. That's a dense story and it's really horrific. Um, and I'm like, she's powerful because we're with them all the way. Not that we support them doing it, but we understand how they get there. And they're young women with understandable problems and they're not like the other girls. And that's the reason that they're together. That's the reason that they dazzle one another. And she goes on to talk about like Heavenly Creatures, which uh, is a movie we'll cover at some point. Um, it's Peter Jackson's first movie, Melanie Linsky and Kate Winslet. It's, it's fantastic. Um, but she goes, you know, nobody wakes up at 15 and has it all figured out. And you don't wake up at 20 and figure it out or 30. And the older you get, the more you know that your best and closest friends in most cases will come and go as you mature or fail to mature. And I really wanted to look at that, all the things that happen to girls at that age, but from the point of view of girls who are really proud at the beginning of the movie that they don't belong and that they don't want to be in a club that would have them. They're just a unit of two and they actually see advancing out of this world together. First of all, Mary Shelley. Original gothic basement kid. <laughs> she really is. <laughs> Second of all, uh, yeah, no, listen to that. It, it all makes perfect sense for what you for what she set out to do with this movie and what it ended up being. And we've been asked by people since we started the podcast, like, hey, when are you going to do, like, Halloween? When are you going to do, like, a Friday the 13th movie? And those are not teen girl movies really and they're certainly not really being about te being a teen girl they just have teen girls and, and maybe we will someday but unlike a very classic horror final girl like this is so much more about being a teen girl than just having one as like a way for the audience to empathize with the final character to be more invested in your plot like there's no exploitation of the teen girl for sympathy this is just like a, a very Mary Shelley gothic kind of tragedy. Mm -hmm. I agree completely. I mean, I could make an argument to why we could do Halloween, but that's just me. Well, I'm not going to say we shouldn't do it. I'm <laughs> saying like just as an example. Yeah, yeah. But in in a movie like this, the the teen girldom, that is the heart. This movie does not exist without those themes. Uh -huh. you, could, you could kind of redo a lot of the, the slasher canon without the final girls into something else and we that it would have just changed the convention of it uh -huh. but the movie could have still existed in that world this movie does not exist unless you have these characters going through these these certain circumstances yeah 
You'd love it. She comes for the ride. No scratch. Swap some juice. We'll be our own pack like before. So us be. I'd rather be dead than be what you are. We have a pact! I'll buy 16 or death and save it together for fucking ever! I said I would die for you. No, you said you'd die with me because you had nothing better to do. Fuck you, too. You think I want to go back to being nobody? You're fucked! So I want to talk a little bit. We've talked about Ginger's transformation, but I want to talk about Bridget's transformation and, you know, kind of where she ends up at the end of this movie. Um, how do you feel about that transition? She becomes a doer. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she's, she's more of a, like a leader, more of someone who can assert herself against Ginger. And she does it by teaming up with this guy that Ginger says, don't hang out with him. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he just wants one thing. And I don't think he wants to fuck her. No. Like that, that the, everyone seems to be warning her of that. Like, oh, he's a cherry taker or whatever. And I, I don't get that read from Sam at all. I don't either. I think Sam genuinely wants to help because he hit the beast of Bailey Downs with his car. Mm-hmm. He saw what that thing is capable of and mm-hmm. he wants to stop it. There are many easier ways to go about getting a, a cheap lay if you are like a teenage scumbag than well, trying to slay a werewolf. Well, especially because Trina Sinclair throws herself at him the entire movie mm-hmm. and he's just like, yeah, whatever. Um, no, he's interested with Bridget because he wants to get to the bottom of this. He wants to help her because, mm-hmm. you know, for most of the movie, he thinks that Bridget's the one who was bit when we know that that's not true. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, Bridget's being a good sister. She's trying to protect Ginger by not being like, oh yeah, my sister got bit by a werewolf, mm-hmm. um, which I find very kind of her. But Bridget sort of grows, like she's not the one who goes through puberty in this movie. She doesn't get the period but she's the one who matures and grows up. Like Ginger becomes way more destructive, even without kind of the the werewolf element to it. Like when she has sex with Jason and he's like, you know, I should be the one that's in control. Like who's the guy here? And Ginger's basically like, shut up, bitch. I'm going to have sex with you now. <laughs> and is like very much the dom mm-hmm. force. And it's this moment where you recognize, like, she doesn't fully understand, like, what's going on with her or what power she's got going on here. Mm -hmm. She doesn't know how to control this yet. So she's just kind of lashing out, which I think is very common when teen girls go through puberty. Oh, yeah. Like, Like, we're all a bunch of moody assholes for a reason. Oh, yeah. One of the most real feeling lines in the whole movie is when she's shaving her leg and her mom comes in. is like, hey, honey, you doing okay? And she's like, fuck off, mom. Yeah. She just screams at her. And I'm like, yeah, no, that feels like what I imagine a teen girl. That feels like what I imagine living with a 15 year old girl. would be. Oh yeah. It's forever the, the, the Annie and freaky Friday of, Oh my God, you're ruining my life. Like it's, it's that energy. Yeah. But one thing that I think is so interesting is that when you look at where Bridget is at the start of the movie versus ginger, there's a lot more to uh, maturing than physically just because you're getting older and your body's changed. Like you just because you're 50 years old, maybe doesn't mean you're mature. Like you have to actually like work on yourself and grow emotionally and mentally. And that's what Bridget's doing in this movie. And that is a significantly more powerful change because that's what ultimately ends up, you know, killing in quotes her sister. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 
that's that's something that I would like the trans read of this movie to put in its pipe and smoke it. Well, okay, so because we, we've had this discussion a lot off of off mic, and I think that it is relevant here, is this idea of magic wanding, mm-hmm. where the amount of people that believe, you know, culturally, once I have my period and once I get boobs and I become a woman, like that's the magic wand, then all my problems will be solved. When, once I have facial feminization surgery, once I get on hormones, once I get bottom surgery, all my problems will be solved. Right. And that's not how it works. Like there is no magic wand to this. You have to work on yourself and your own emotional well-being at the same time as sort of these physical things. Like can they can they help? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Like if you feel really shitty about yourself and you want to change something about it, that can absolutely help. Yeah, definitely. But you that like that's not the only thing that has to take place. Like there's a reason that they do like psychological evaluations before you get plastic surgery. Mm-hmm. They have to make sure that like you're you're doing this for the right reasons and that you understand that like this isn't a magic wand. It's not going to solve all of your problems. Yeah, let's let's think about this in terms of like their town that they don't want to be in. Mm-hmm. They move somewhere significantly better. I don't know. Toronto, I hear, is nice. They go <laughs> they go to Toronto because they're in Canada. And if you're a miserable person, you're going to be miserable anywhere. Yeah. You'll find new things to hate, and that's largely how they're defining themselves. And, I mean, that's a very teenage thing. Like, you hate stuff because you have a lot of frustrated feelings, and you don't know how to manage them. And, like, there's a million reasons for that. But... These external fixes don't fix the internal problem, and that is so intensely what this movie is kind of about. It, it's about maturity, physically and mentally. Yeah, ag- agreed. And Karen Walton says something similar where she says that each of them has a journey. I didn't want to do that traditional popular horror style where it's just one girl or it's all the girls and one girl survives or something. Because it's not all the same. And wouldn't some of us make different decisions? Yeah, we would. Because we're not all the same. We're not going to make the same mistakes. We're not going to look at a problem the same way. And that was really important for me, for Bridget especially, because the point of the story is that if Bridget tried to stay with Ginger and defend her when she becomes absolutely not Ginger anymore, not only would that be a lie, but she herself needs to end this relationship to survive. Mm -hmm. In order for Bridget to ever have the kind of happiness she deserves, she's going to have to break up this codependency. Yeah, and the, I yeah, absolutely. And like, what what does it say about like her subconscious that she had the cure in one hand and a knife in the other one? Right, right. Like that. Like, I will not die down here with you. Yeah. And what what is what does that mean in a general sense? Because she just says like, "Hey, we made a blood pact. We're gonna kill ourselves together. We we will die together." Like she has no intentions of living. Ginger is never going to let her live in the context of this story. Correct. And that's even something that they bring up where it's like, you know, we made a pact, dead by 16 in the scene or, you know, but together forever. Mm-hmm. And um, there's that moment where Ginger's looking at Bridget and she goes, I said that I would die for you. And Bridget says, no, you said you'd die with me mm-hmm. because you had nothing better to do. Mm-hmm. And that is a very important distinction. Like, I'm a person that looking at you right here and now, Harmony. I would die for you. Thank you. I would die if it meant that you got to survive. Yeah. I would also die with you, for sure. Yeah, but, I would do both. But that's the thing, is... I'd rather neither of us die, Right, I would, I would neither of that not happen, but <laughs> Bush came to shove. Whereas Ginger's, Ginger would not die for, for Bridget. Ginger mm-hmm. would go on living without Bridget just fine. Oh, yeah. 
but she would die with her because she got nothing better to do. Mm-hmm. Whereas up until that point, Bridget would have died for Ginger and would have died with Ginger. Yeah. And this transformation is her finally being like, no, I'll die with you, but I, I will not die for you. Yeah. Ginger, Ginger will find someone else to take macabre photographs of her for. Mm-hmm. She She's growing up into a pretty young lady. There's plenty of horror photographers that'll take gross pictures of her covered in blood and half dead. Just <laughs> You can find them. They're everywhere. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the ending, but I more so just kind of want to, I want to just amplify Karen's words about the ending because I share the same sentiment. Okay. I think that it's, it's wonderful. But she said, it was one of the last scenes we were absolutely sure of because it was really hard to decide how we wanted people to feel watching the movie as it ended. It's truly a tragedy for these characters that we care about, but that was the trick. So we care about them now. It wasn't like, yay, the bad guy's got an axe in his head and the woman with a really tight t-shirt went. It wasn't that type of movie. Who wins here? This is horrible. It's horror. Two individuals I really care about can't finish the movie in a positive way. It wouldn't be true, you know? Let's keep these characters as who they really are. When I think about it, I automatically choke up a bit because I still flash back to the days at my desk where I'm trying to write the final moments between Ginger and Bridget. There's a lot of Kleenex, I'm telling you. I knew I got it right when I was like, oh, this is horrible. This isn't how I wanted this to end, but this is how it has to end. Bridget has to survive this. And Ginger, even if she's still in there, she isn't Ginger anymore. Like, get out. Save yourself. One of my complaints is always like, why do they run in the basement when they know the thing is always in the basement? Yeah. That's a, that's a good last line. Right? And, uh, you know, she goes on to talk about Scream and how much she loves it as well. But, like, uh-huh. that that's really what is going on here is that... No matter what, even if she cures Ginger, Ginger isn't Ginger anymore. Mm-hmm. She's she's grown and now she's turned into kind of this like vindictive and manipulative person. She's not the Ginger she was beforehand because that's that's life. People grow and they change and sometimes the ways that they change are not positive mm-hmm. and you have to find that strength in yourself to let them go. Mm-hmm. Like something that I, I struggle with a lot. And I think a lot of people, especially in the last couple years have been struggling with is having to come to terms with the fact that people that have like made huge impacts in your life, either a family member or a, a friend that you've known for a very, very long time when you recognize that like your moral boundaries are nowhere near the same. Mm-hmm. Like I think about the amount of people I know who were like, yeah, I had to go no contact with my parents because my parents, you know, don't believe in racial justice or I can't talk to my grandparents anymore because they think that gay people all deserve to burn in hell. Like these really intense things where you have to understand like, this person who may have meant a lot to you once upon a time, that's not who they are. Mm-hmm. And it's not always good for you to keep those people in your life. And that's what we have with Bridget and Ginger is like Bridget loves her. Like that is her sister. That is her best friend. She loves her. But she also knows that like this person and this thing that Ginger's become, that's not the Ginger she loves anymore. And she's got to cut her loose. Like she can't like she has to cut that cancer out of her life. Yeah, and there people who insist on staying in touch with, like, family, because, like, family, like, oh, it's my dad, it's my mom, it's my grandma, whatever. 
Um, I don't know if I understand people like that. I, I grew up in an extremely, like, distant family. Like, we were not close, really, past, like, me being the age of, like, six or seven, where, oh, hey, you have a little personality and it's not what I wanted. Ugh. Oh, the parents are going through a divorce. Ah, everything kind of fell apart and we just were people inhabiting a domicile together. So I'm all for, like, kind of cutting people out of my life. I actually, this year, cut my mom out of my life, which is great. Like, yeah, maybe she'll come back. I don't know. That power's in my hands, and she is more of a burden than a benefit. So I can't really understand how hard that is for most people because it's so beyond my my personal emotional reasoning, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no. And I definitely have family members that I do not communicate with, that I'm no contact with for a lot of those similar reasons. But then I also have, like, my own mother's pretty sentimental. Like, mm-hmm. I know that it's it's a lot harder for her to do it. She'll do it, but mm-hmm. it's a lot harder for her to do it. Yeah. And I also recognize that not everybody can do that. Like, there's there's so much... There's so much emotion and and lived experience tied to having to end those relationships. And that's what makes the end of this movie so sad mm-hmm. is because you know that this is not this was not an easy decision. This no. was not, you know, like, fuck you, ghost face, let me kill you. Yeah, if it was an easy decision, then why did we just watch a 90-minute movie? Exactly. Um, and it's it's just it's really hard to to watch that happen, but you you know that that is how this movie had to end. Like, as much as in your heart of hearts, you might think like, oh, it would have been so great if they just would have like ran off together and it would have been like the ending of Let the Right One In, which is also not an inspiring ending and people think that it is because people are weird. Mm-hmm. But Bridget knows like even even if she were to like help Ginger, like it would have been a lifetime of being the one who takes care of her. Mm-hmm. It would have been a lifetime of being the one who covers for her. Mm-hmm. Like, Lest we forget, Ginger killed a bunch of people, like, before she fully turned. Like, a lot of people. And mom wants to burn the house down and just flee with her kids to cover it all up. Exactly. So, like, this isn't, like, this is, like, the antithesis of, like, a Thelma and Louise ending. Where it's like, let's just keep going. We're not running anymore. And it's beautiful and it feels great. And it's like, oh, no, this is not in the sun and it's glorious and a blaze of glory. And they both die together. It's like... No, I'm, you have to die so that I may live because I will not live like this. And yeah. that's just the reality. Yeah. And I, I think they really made something special. And the reason being is because there wasn't like an agenda to what they were doing. They just wanted to tell a true and authentic story, you know, through the lens of a horror film. And I like to think that they succeeded because it's a movie we're still talking about 20 years later. It's a movie that people love and have analyzed to to hell and back. There are so many essays and, and YouTube videos and, you know, what have you about this movie. You can mm-hmm. find all of it. But this movie is kind of the, the perfect teen girl horror movie. I mean, everyone's going to have their personal favorites, but... I, I can't argue that. <laughs> this movie is so intrinsically a a teen girl horror movie. Um, over over on the Patreon, like we just recorded an episode about Idle Hands, 
And, you know, I, I could have picked any number of, of teen boy horror movies. There's an unlimited number of movies that are horror and are about teen boys. But I picked that because it is so undeniably a teen boy horror movie. Mm-hmm. And this is undeniably about teen girls in the way that, like, the craft is it has to be teen girls. That movie doesn't work without it being teen girls. Mm-hmm. Tragedy Girls has to be teen girls. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's entirely necessary. And this movie is really dark and sad, but it's also about growing up, and that is the teen experience. Mm-hmm. And if it wasn't for a movie like Ginger Snaps, we likely would not have gotten a movie like Jennifer's Body. So this really was kind of laying the foundation for a lot of these really subversive teen girl coming of age horror movies that we got in the aughts and even until today that really bring me a lot of joy. And I I love this movie and I hope that this episode inspired a lot of people to check it out for the first time if they haven't. But Harmony, the time has come. Oh yeah? Ginger Snaps is asking you to the prom. Is it a yes, a no, or a maybe? And are you writing anything on the card back? It is the biggest yes. <laughs> Perfect. Like, like last month or whatever, we did our ranking of the 50 movies that we first covered and how they rank up with each other. And it's like, oh, no, this is an S-tier film. Yeah, this, this is an A+. Plus. Like, th- th- this is like a top-tier film. It's one of the best films we've ever covered. Mm-hmm. It's damn near perfect mm-hmm. like i i think it's great i i really like everything you can take out of it everything it's directly saying and everything it's indirectly saying is 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 it's pretty it's pretty fucking awesome <laughs> well great i love that and friends i i think on that note there's not much more we can say that hasn't already been said either by ourselves or by the countless others who have analyzed this film because it is so beloved If you liked this episode and you want to support the show, you can always give us that five-star review on Apple iTunes. It really does help the show. We also have a Patreon, patreon.com backslash thisendsatprom. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at thisendsatprom. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at BJ Colangelo. I'm doing lots of spooky stuff for spooky season, so there's a lot going on over there if you want to check that out. Harmony, where can people find you? I am doing less things than BJ for spooky season, <laughs> which, you know, I, I think everyone is doing less than you for spooky season. Yeah. It's a strong case. <laughs> so you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram to see what little things I'm doing here and there at Velocitraptor, Velosa underscore trap underscore tour. And as always, huge thank you to the Sonderbombs for allowing us to use title for our theme song. Harmony, do you have a cool indie band for people to check out this week? I don't know why I phrase it like that every single week. Like, I know that you don't have one. Like, oh, maybe you don't have one this week. I, you have one. There's definitely been weeks where you're like, do you? And I went, crap, I did not think of one. <laughs> and then I have to scramble through my Spotify to be like, oh, my God, who released something good that I want to plug? <laughs> All right. So who do you got? Uh, I have a personal favorite of mine, particularly for this time of year. His name is Will Wood, and his album Everything is a Lot by Will Wood and the Tapeworms from uh, like maybe five years ago, six years ago, is a Halloween staple for me every single year. It's got a lot of um, Danny Elfman meets Tom Waits chaos that I really, really love, and that kind of permeates into all of his music, but... The specific song he released recently is called Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, and it is 
probably not as sad or as impactful unless you understand the very uh, tumultuous relationship that this man has with his fans and his public image and his mental health and his substance abuse. And I don't know if it's as great to anybody else as it is to me, but if you want something a little more accessible, the Normal album came out last year. It was my favorite release of that year. And it is all about suburban America and 80s nostalgia, by the way, a 50s nostalgia. And it's also dark and it's about mental health and it's just absolutely in- incredible. So, yeah, just, just go listen to Will Wood. He's got an Indiegogo up right now to fund his next studio album. Well, beautiful. That's so much deeper than I normally get with our plugs, but <laughs> he's, he's one of my favorite people making music today, so. Well, wonderful. I hope everybody checks out Will Wood. Will Wood's music is pretty fantastic. I think y'all will love it. But friends, that takes us out on this. We will see you next time for the continuation of Spooky Season. Save the last dance for us. Ah. So, uh, Fitz, I think we should get together. Um, oh. This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.